Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today, we are incredibly fortunate. We have a visitor to uh, Bridgepoint, Professor Marco Inzatari, who is currently a specialist in geriatric medicine and a master in direction and leadership in healthcare organizations at the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona. I probably messed that up. Uh, anyhow, he's got a PhD and a specialization in geriatrics and clinical uh, pathology of aging. He's been here visiting us at Bridgepoint and at the University of Toronto, working on issues related to some work in integrated care with colleagues like Carrie Kaluski, Michelle Nelson, and Carolyn Steele Gray. So, delighted to welcome you here today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So before I get into your background and how and your trajectory of your research, why did you choose Toronto of all places to come and visit? I chose Toronto because, uh, of course, first of all, I met these uh, wonderful people, as you mentioned, so in some integrated care conference around the world. But uh, mainly through them, I discovered that here you really uh, probably uh, get the better uh, sense and the more clear idea of what I want to achieve uh, there in Barcelona which is uh, merging together research, uh, probably innovation uh, with my background in management and shift our research from a clinical epidemiology point of view towards more implementation science. So what you call here knowledge translation. So applied to complex intervention for old people, uh, mainly with frailty. Excellent. So you're trained as a physician. Right. So how did you, what's the evolution towards this field of medicine and practice and research? Since medical school, actually, I have to say that I was looking for what my real interest was, because I have to confess that I'm not a big fan of medicine in the sense that, for example, I'm not a big fan of uh, biology itself. Like when I heard cytokines at university, my interest was not, you know, so high. So I was looking for something more holistic, I would say. So, I, for example, I did my final work. We have a final work at the medical school in Italy. I'm Italian, actually, on geriatric depression, right? So I was uh, in doubt between geriatrics and psychiatry because this gave to me the chance of exploring the person from an holistic point of view. So considering not only the medical field, the medical part, which is important, but also the psychological, the environment, the social contributors to the status of the person. And really, I'm interested in people more than in medicine. So these were the two uh, parts of medicine that I were most interested in. And I discovered geriatrics because uh, back in Florence, where I trained in medical school, uh, they brought me out of the hospital to visit different, let's say, post-acute facility, but also nursing homes. And they were talking about healthcare policy. And I discovered that from geriatrics, you could really do different service to the community in different senses. And I really like this ability of, you know, uh, impacting in different ways on the person, but also on the society. And this is how I came to geriatrics. Right? Excellent. It's a wonderful uh, how you've described all of the different dimensions that you need to consider when planning, implementing, evaluating, and providing care for older adults. And many of those elements are what we had considered to be elements of complexity. And it's an increasing problem, not just in high-income countries, but globally. So we have a globally aging population. What did you see in Barcelona when you started there in, in Spain as the major stumbling blocks that you had to overcome in order to trend what I would say the work uh, that you're doing and I think the way that I think as well kind of transcends a biomedical model and is you need to take that seriously but it's actually thinking about 
persons in very different ways. How has your work been accepted or have you faced any barriers and obstacles? In I, so I have, I, after Florence, I, I moved to Pittsburgh, to, to the U.S., to do epidemiology training. And then I went back for personal reasons in Barcelona uh, and ended up in Barcelona. And in Barcelona, I got a management position. So at that point, it's where I really felt that our, let's say, direction had to uh, evolve towards this implementation science. So I had the chance to really put in practice what I had learned from research and what the evidence, for example, from randomized controlled trials on uh, complex intervention on all the people uh, say that it was working, right? But sometimes, I mean, what works in the U.S. maybe doesn't work uh, in, in Europe or in another uh, latitude. So you really have to contextualize and you really need this process that you use here to involve people to put in practice this complex intervention. So in Barcelona and Catalonia, there is a very fortunate situation because we have a very strong primary care, a very strong post-acute geriatric care. So that works very well and very good acute hospital, university hospital. So we have nice ingredients within healthcare uh, to provide more integrated care. Sometimes it's hard in an environment with a lot of fragmentation to talk it to each other. So, for example, in my case, uh, let's say what I, what I brought there, uh, the post-acute sector was only looking at the acute hospital, and instead we started looking at the community. So we started talking to primary care physicians, uh, admitting patients directly from primary care, trusting their referrals, and we even ended up working in the community. So I have now a team that goes in the community and works uh, every week with primary care. So all this, let's say the fragmentation, of course, was a barrier. There were good ingredients and we worked to, re let's say, reinforce a trustable relationship between different partners of the of healthcare sector. I must say my jealousy is unbounded because I think you've, you've hit on the crucial element for building these relationships and that's trust. So the way to overcome fragmentation is for various actors, I think, to actually start believe that they have a common goal, uh, that they're working together. What do you think were the elements that allowed you to build trust? Yeah, that's, of course, it's very complex because uh, humans are, are complex. The nature is complex and it's hard and, and there is not a guide to say how you should do. So in our case, part of it is a matter of personality. I mean, the fact that you go there with open mind and you don't have hidden interests, you know, to, to prioritize, but you sit them, we sit down with them. For example, with primary care, we started sitting down and we really realized that there was a win-win in our relationship because they, they had to face the aging of the population and we had some expertise that could be complementary. For example, in this case, we really envisioned that we could work together, but we had to respect them. Because uh, primary care, of course, they take care of the continuity of the patient. So in some cases, geriatrics in the U.S., where primary care is not there, they take, take over. So they, they really become primary care physician for all people, which is something that we shouldn't do. Because primary care is very good in, in Catalonia. So we should provide like shorter term intensive care for the episode that they cannot manage because they are too complex or they not, don't have time. So with this idea of respect, we design, co-design intervention with this uh, spirit, with this aim. So for example, with the intervention we have in the community to prevent disability in frail older people, we agreed that we were not doing extra follow-ups. So we just need the baseline visit and intervention and one follow-up, and then we work with them uh, in case they need us for the next follow-up. So that, that's a part. So understanding each other and respecting the, the work of each other. 
And then, for example, we try to involve other partners, uh, both from the hospital and from primary care, for example, in everything we did. For example, we did research on uh, transition from ER to post-acute care or from home to post-acute care, and we involved the other professionals in our research, sometimes leading the research, so sometimes uh, helping them to get the data, since we had more expertise, to uh, publish, and we published together. So all this is a way of building trust, and usually another important element is that we ask them what they need. For example, now we are working with primary care, so we ask them what they need. So this year they wanted to be trained on how to prescribe exercise in older people. So we have a physical therapist going them and doing session with them, try to empower them to you know, reinforce this idea of uh, having older people being active in the community. Uh, this is music to my ears because uh, so much of my research over the past 15 years has been trying to enable primary care physicians, family physicians in Canada to manage more an increasingly complex range of older adults. In Canada, we only have, I think, 297 geriatricians, uh, for, and that's for the whole country. Most of them are over the age of 50, and they're concentrated in academic centers. And most of the solutions to the looming elder care crisis have been said to send everybody for comprehensive geriatric assessment. And at the time, I was on the board of the regional geriatrics program, did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation, said, you're going to have to work 24-7, 365, and you'll still fall about 100,000 assessments short. So what I really liked what you're saying is skilling up and instructing family physicians, primary care physicians, and primary care teams uh, to be better enabled to care for this uh, growing group of complex older adults. What other sort of capacity building exercises have you been engaged in? Yeah, I think that, that that's a very important point because shortage of geriatricians is everywhere. So it's uh, in the U.S. they are having a huge crisis, and even in in Europe and in Catalonia is not uh, less than that. So one of the mainstream in this moment is to try to share knowledge, so to empower, as you said, like primary care physician, other professionals, uh, with what we learned along our you know in years uh, of practicing, but also we want to go there and try to get a little back from the top of the pyramid of complexity and try to do also preventative interventions. That the case we were, I was talking about before. So we go in primary care and we work with primary care physicians to try to detect these people that start to, for example, slow down. So this, they have kind of a frailty established, but they are not disabled yet. Mm-hmm. So they are quite functioning and still living alone in a majority of cases and being autonomous. So we have that's a good target of intervention because we can delay uh, disability and probably complexity and for example with a multifactorial program with a physical exercise and physical activity that's possible RCT randomized control trials it works and for us it's working in this real world program the interesting part is that we brought in this program also other community resources for example civic centers of the neighborhood uh, which are not part of the healthcare system they're part of the social system let's say they came uh, and work with us and co-designed let's say, a follow-up program of physical activity, but we reduce supervision to try to empower people to keep uh, running, let's say, and doing physical activity by themselves in group or alone or whatever, because otherwise the system, as you say, won't be sustainable in the long run if we don't empower the citizen to take care of their own health. So one of the big problems in Canada, even though we have comprehensive first-payer insurance, so everybody's eligible, 
is that we're identifying a larger number of isolated older adults who may be living in the community, their neighbors may know or may not know about them, and they're often not frequently in contact with the healthcare system. Have you had any special outreach programs to deal with the issue of social isolation and loneliness? Right. We know that that's a big program everywhere. No? Yeah. Uh, the, in the UK, they have now a, a ministry for solitude, for example, and it's also for us. So in, in Barcelona, we have, for example, good programs from the city hall. Okay, One of these programs, for example, is the radar program. And the Reader program is a program, it's very interesting. I mean, I've been collaborating somehow and mainly talking to these people, but it's not my direct job. So this uh, Reader program tried to enable and uh, train different actors within a neighborhood, for example, from people who run shops uh, to people that work in the public administration to detect cases of isolation uh, in older adults. And if they detect these cases, for example, suddenly a person who used to go and, and buy the bread every day or every week or whatever, kind of, you know, uh, reduce the frequency, tend to disappear, whatever, they can uh, reach them or talk to other people like social workers and so on that uh, get an alert. And this activates a program or a protocol with the first contact with the person. Of course, some person can choose to be alone. So they you know not everybody, solitude is not... <laughs> Not necessarily a bad yeah, thing course. for introverts, but, yeah. <laughs> but in another situation, so they establish a contact with the person and they try to provide, you know, for example, uh, volunteers to help the person or try to bring the person out and, and have the person in community programs and so on. So there are different activities and we try to hook our work with these existing programs and different activities. For example, we work with, us, with the social workers at the primary care center which is also linked to this kind of program. So we kind to, you know, build uh, on the existing situation in the community and not a huge brand new program from the scratch, which won't be e even like sustainable. Yeah, and then you can map out areas of uh, that, that have coverage with primary care right. and with social services. And true integration would allow you to have a seamless connection between the health and the social service component and uh, communication between them. And that way, those who need access would have access, and those who don't want it, at least you know, inevitably, something's right. going to happen, right. and you'll be there for them when that happens. We have the chance, as I said before, like primary care works very well, and they reach virtually 100% of citizens. Yeah. So, and, and primary care physicians don't work alone. They work in a team with nurses, social workers, and uh, other, other professionals. So that's very good. So the social system also works very well. Sometimes it's hard, the communication, besides specific like pilot projects and so on. But now there is a big emphasis from the government to, you know, share data and work collaboratively and so on. So uh, this kind of interaction are, are increasing uh, every day. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is I don't know with great detail how primary care is organized in Catalonia, but you mentioned you have team-based primary care. So the physician is working in a team with a nurse, a social worker. Who, what other allied health professions are available there? Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the main differences I'm observing compared to Ontario in this case, so from what I have been told mostly. So we have this primary care which has been reformed like years ago and is organized in... Uh, primary care centers that serve a population between, I would say, 20,000, 40,000, it depends on the area. So the health professional, family physician, uh, nurse, social workers, and administrative people who also is a reference for each person, of course, as a first contact with the center, 
and pediatrician also. So they work in this center as uh, and have a salary, so they are not fee-for-service uh, yeah. professional, as in majority of cases in Canada, in my understanding. So uh, they cover a population and they have a pro capita, let's say a capitative model of uh, reimbursement. So they have to provide since proactive uh, preventative interventions to control cardiovascular risk factors, but also for childbirth or whatever other things you, you might imagine, to reactive care. So they have to do home visits, they have to have a program for follow-up, chronic patients and so on. So uh, this is why the base is very good. They also try to evolve because sometimes the schedule are not so flexible to allow to follow up these complex patients, but also there is a chance of bringing together other expertise as in our case. So already many specialties, I think it's around the 10 specialties from the hospital because of the policy of the government, have to do some work in primary care. Yeah. And geriatric is not one of these, but uh, in these, uh, let's say, demonstrative projects, we are uh, really getting out from our centers and uh, looking at the community and try to collaborate for preventative or, let's say, reactive uh, situations. Yeah, and the beauty of that model of organization of care is that you can collect and follow trends of data over time. Right. Because you've got a capitated model, so you know what your denominator is, and then you can follow along through right. the life course and really start to understand the population and the community's health. Although the, the capitated model works for primary care, but still uh, acute care and specialist care are paid, is reimbursed depending on the work they do, so kind of fee-for-service reimbursement. So this doesn't help the, the integration, but uh, the government is trying to work to overcome that. What we also have is a very nice ICT system. So there is a cloud platform on top of each EMR at the single centers uh, that allows to share a lot of information. And this sharing is not volunteer. So the government, since the the majority of public providers, or 100%, have a contract with the government. So the government, by contract, forced the last years the different providers to adopt standards of language, let's say, to talk to this cloud platform. Yeah. So everybody's hooked there, and every citizen can access their own information about discharge letters, chronic medication, uh, exams, and so on, in the cloud. Yeah. So that's a good help to you know, integration within our care. And also it's a good source of data. Yeah. And we did not do that here in Ontario. I think we had a profusion of vendors with no interoperability. And so we're kind of purblind. One last question before we close. One of the things I've thought a lot about, um, so I do a lot of thinking around measurement issues. And um, a couple of years ago, Kerry Kaluski and Sean Tracy and I published a paper on with this emerging complex patient population, what are the outcomes that we should be measuring? So it's clearly not disease-specific, morbidity or mortality. So any thoughts on what are, if we're implementing and we're committed to integrated care, what is it we're trying to achieve? I think in this case, you, you probably know better than I, so this is why I'm here to learn from you. But of course, as a geriatrician, I've been always obsessed with the function and quality of life. So that, that's the traditional goals that we always had in mind, function for the majority of patients and quality of life as a general overarching outcomes, uh, even for those who are towards the end of life. I think that's an important thing for us, but also I have learned in the last years that we really 
have to go and, and ask the patients what is more meaningful to them. So bringing in the patient experience, the uh, patient reported outcomes measure and experience measure, of course, is, is becoming increasingly, uh, let's say, trendy uh, over the world, but it's not by chance. I mean, there is a reason, no? Yes. We were not used to ask to people and we have to, you know, merge, let's say, more objective outcomes as what I said, like function, quality of life or uh, other like depression or other type of outcomes with this patient reporting outcomes and experience measures. And of course, in, in my case, I think that we also have to be uh, realistic and take a look at the sustainability of the system. So when we do intervention, of course, the uh, cost part or the cost quality part, not the cost by themselves, but related to the gain you obtain yeah. in quality of life or other meaningful outcomes is very important as well. Fabulous. Thank you so much for taking time. I'm glad you came to Toronto. I'm hoping that some meaningful and sustainable collaborations result from this. And it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much, Marco. Thank you so much as well. Uh, it's been wonderful collaborating with you. Beautiful. Beautiful.